There we go. Thanks, Scott, for your help there, for helping us in worship as well. Invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter number four today. Missed uh, being here with you last week. We had the opportunity to go observe a anniversary getaway after 36 years of marriage. Uh, Frankie patiently putting up with me, and it was an awesome getaway. Feel feel rested. And Frankie's like, when can we do it again? I'm like, I don't know. We'll have to ponder that. But Acts chapter 4 is where we are. We're just going to look at a couple of verses, but uh, uh, there's some uh, great help for us, I think, in today's passage in Acts chapter 4, beginning there with verse number 32. And uh, Acts 4, verse 32, there the Bible says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. God, thank you for the reality about the church that we see in your word today. We pray that your spirit will bring your truth to life and help us as we think about our own lives here as followers of you in uh, our time. We ask for great grace to be on us. God, great power to be on us as well that we can experience you and that we can proclaim you in the same way that they did, with the same energy and enthusiasm that they had. God, fill us and help us, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I came to be a follower of Christ as an adult in 1987, 24 years of age. I've shared before, today uh, is 25 years ago that my mom passed away. 25 years ago, my mom died at 58 years of age. And we had just moved to Effingham County, and uh, I remember it vividly. Uh, But my mom was the person who shared Jesus with me, and I prayed to receive Christ because of her faithful witness to me as a young person where my wife was um, in a bad place, and I needed hope, and I needed the reality of the good news of Christ to become the, the truth that I lived by. And not too long after becoming a follower of Jesus I had a crisis of entertainment because I was like I love music but I didn't know who to listen to and um, I I worked with friends that were like everything was off limits you know the the only Christians I knew were like um, legalists and so I'm like trying to figure out how to find good Christian music and my sister who was a follower of Jesus told me about the music of Keith Green and I don't know how many of you know Keith Green's music but uh, I said he was like a um, prophet with a piano, basically, uh, as a pulpit. That, that was essentially who Keith Green was. But um, he would step on your toes. You had to uh, really be willing to uh, have your toes stepped on to listen to his music. And I was thinking about the contrast sometimes that we observe between the church in our day and the first century church. And he saw that. He had such a passion for the church. And in his day, he wrote songs. I included some of the lyrics that, uh, just for us to think about. He says, how can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you can't even get out of bed. Ouch. Ouch. That song's called The Sleep in the Light. He says, the world is searching in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. He says, we're asleep. The, church, the world is dead, but we're asleep. And he says, you've got to wake up so that you can help the world. The world needs help. It comes through the light of the good news of the gospel, the glory of Christ that we know. In the first century, they were so convicted. They didn't have to be convicted. I think about them. In the first century in the book of Acts, they knew Jesus was alive. They knew he was alive. They saw it with their own eyes. I think about what they had. We couldn't even really call it faith as such. I mean, they did have faith. But their faith was born out of the reality of, like Thomas, where Jesus says, here handle me and see if I'm not flesh and blood. They knew he was alive. But that conviction caused the church to grow powerfully. 
And I think about the difference today between us and them. Of course, when Jesus talked to Thomas, you remember what he said? He said to him, you believe because you've seen. But he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Who is that? That's you. That's me. We weren't there in the first century. We didn't handle his hands. We didn't see the scars in his feet. We didn't sit down and eat fish with the resurrected Jesus, but we believe. But here's the the question for us, I think, that arises from this text. There were some uncommon realities that marked their experience, and my question is, why aren't they common to us? They're uncommon now. They were common among them. But I think if the church in our day is going to be powerful and effective in the way that it was in the first century when they had such conviction that rose out of the reality of Jesus' resurrection, then we need to understand these uncommon realities and embrace them as our own testimony and our own commitment in life. So I want to think about those in this message today. What do you see in this passage that they had, that they possessed, that gave such rich power to their fellowship? that was so compelling about what was happening among them. They had uncommon unity. I love how it expresses it in this passage because it says they were all of one heart and of one, of one soul. They were all of one heart and one soul. And I think they, they were, they, of course, each person what they had many hearts and many souls but here's how I thought about it in my preparation they weren't many hearted or many soul they were many hearts and souls who who saw the big picture the same way that's different right they were many hearts and many souls just like you are when it's talking about the heart the internal person when it's talking about the soul a soul is a being a human created with its identity and realities, but they saw the big picture the same way. And that's the difference. It's like sometimes what church looks like in our time is like everybody has got their own agenda, everybody's got their own idea, but in Scripture we see that what really compelled them was the one big idea. What was it? What was the one big idea? That God loved people so much that he came here to us, and that he was born from a virgin. It's not complicated, right? We know what it says. He came here born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died a vicarious sacrificial death. He was placed into a tomb that wasn't his. He was raised in power from the grave. He appeared to people, as many as 500 at one time, who gave witness to his resurrection. He ascended up into heaven with the promise that he would return for his people. And he gave us an assignment. The assignment's easy to understand. You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the, of the earth. He said, you're going to be my witnesses. You are going to speak of this powerful reality. You are going to live in such a way that this gospel is believable. He says, that's, that's his agenda. So when we think about them being of one heart, and what was that about? It was about that compelling truth. That was the glue that kept them together. We think about how difficult it is sometimes just to have unity in, in our community. But this was their mutually understood vision. That was the vision that they held among one another. I've read a book by Kent and Barbie Hughes, a pastoral couple. He's a pastor, she's his wife, uh, called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. Such a powerful book that I need to be reminded of all the time, which basically says that all that we can do is be faithful. All we can do is be faithful. All we can do is live with integrity and character. He says, and don't get wrapped up in uh, the the, um, outcomes. Those are God's. Paul planted, or Apollos planted, Paul watered, whichever one. One of them planted, one of them watered. But who gave the increase? God. 
God gave the increase. He says, but I want you to plant. I want you to water. That's your task that I've given to you. But Kent Hughes said, believe what you believe. Believe what you believe. That's so simple. But what he says is belief is something that gets internalized and then becomes our behavior. Belief that's only here is not Bible belief. Belief that gets stuck in in between your ears but doesn't affect our way of life, that's not what the Bible has in mind when it talks about commitment. The Bible by belief means commitment that shows up in behavior. So if, you know, we understand what we believe, which is what we just spelled out, then we have our life and ambition clearly defined for us. God's defined it for us. He says to any church, you know, a lot of times churches will work at mission statements. And, but a mission statement is so easy. All we have to do is see what God said to do and then to do it. It's, his mission is, is clear to us. It's us bringing ourselves to it that is the fuzzy part a lot of times. We looked at this passage in Sunday school recently. The Apostle Paul said, For the love of Christ constrains or compels us because we judged us that if one died for all, then all died. One did die for all. Jesus died for everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. One died for everyone. That's the idea of the gospel. His sacrifice was for each of us. His his sinlessness became our righteousness, and that righteousness is imputed or applied to us for our forgiveness. But it says, if it's true that one died, then what, what follows? All died. All died to what? All died to our selfish impulses to live for ourselves and to think of ourselves exclusively. He says, that, I think that's part of what it's trying to say to us. He died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's the vision that God had in his heart for congregations, for us, for the people of God who end up being uh, connected in local churches like this one. All over the world, same thing, everywhere you go. That Christ, uh, he, he laid down his life. And then he says, when you follow me, what are we? What's a Christian? A little Christ, right? An imitator of Jesus first. An imitator. Someone that the Spirit of God comes to live inside, empowers, and then we imitate Jesus. And he says, so what did I do? I laid down my life. I called you my friends. I laid down my life. I invited you into this life. And he says, I'm asking you as a as discipleship what followership means is that you routinely behave this way you lay down your life you don't act out of self-interest only of course I am interested in things that pertain pertain to me I'm going to go home and eat today I like it I like to eat I'm going to do it it's self-interest it keeps me alive but what it's saying in the big picture is a person that follows Jesus is not living selfishly they're not or we're in disobedience to what he makes it plain that this life is all about. They had unity. They were connected to one another in a, a powerful way. Wherever we go, you and I, whatever we do, we belong to Christ and each other. It's not just that we belong to Jesus. We do. A person that, that uh, doesn't understand that Jesus is Lord doesn't understand the Christian life. That if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, we'll be saved. That's how salvation works. Jesus is Lord. So from the beginning, I've said before, I didn't understand everything about what it meant to be a Christian, but when I said Jesus is Lord, I was saying I am not. I'm not. I've I've stopped being the person that, that is in control of my own life. I'm laying my life down. To the extent that I understood that, and then discipleship the rest of the way just means embracing that reality over and over and over again in all kinds of situations that I go, Jesus is Lord, not Bobby. Even though that's difficult and my flesh doesn't like it, it's, it's discipleship, it's what it looks like. So we belong to God, but we, be- we also belong to each other. We belong to each other. We're family. As many as received him to them, he gave the authority to become the children of God. We have a a family likeness. We belong to each other. 
So this unity is worked out in community, community where we are with other people who we have different experiences with. I've been listening to a podcast about the uh, decline of First Baptist Jacksonville. It's really interesting to pastors, you know, because the Heath Lambert is the pastor there now at First Baptist Jacksonville. It was they built a ten thousand seat auditorium at a time when that seemed like a wise thing to do. But in these days, their average attendance is about three or four thousand people, and so. When they, they said like on Easter Sunday they had 6,000, but still if you have 3,000 people in a 10,000 seat auditorium, it feels a little like it feels in here a lot of times. And, they, and the whole podcast is just about decline and leadership. Like how, what happens when you start thinking about how do you help the church flourish? What's, where does vitality, what are the principles involved? And sometimes it's, it starts in diagnosis, and, it, and part of the diagnosis was, of course, they, they had a payroll that was, um, they, they were having to borrow money to make it work all the time. And imagine trying to keep up a facility that's like Madison Square Garden or something as your meeting place with declining numbers where they, they at one time had $90 million of debt that they didn't know how to, they didn't know what to do. They had 12 city blocks in Jacksonville that this church, you know, had as a campus with declining numbers. But he says when he started looking closely at some of the uh, problems, he said one of the most obvious ones was that their staff was divided. They had division. So everybody had their own agenda. And they talk about silos and stuff like that. Where it's a, a silo is like you function in an independent way and what you're doing may really have significance and importance, but it's not happening in concert with everything else. So one of the, you know, you don't have to be a 10,000-member congregation to not be working together in a helpful way. You remember, maybe you do, or maybe you don't. But um, I shared I went to Kotzebue, Alaska one summer on a mission trip. Kotzebue is 30 miles north of the Arctic Circle. You have to fly there or go by boat. You can't drive there. It's on the tundra. And so we went there with a group of people. I had a friend who was a pastor at the church, a church in Kotzebue. And in the summer, we were there during the week of the 4th of July, they have a, a tug of war between native women and white men. So the native women are the, you know, Alaskan women who have lived there and worked in whaling industry. So they destroy the men in a tug of war. But how do they do that? Because they, they pull together. They know what to do. They work in unison. And the illustration from that is really obvious. It's like we, if we really want the most out of what God wants to do here at Grace Community Church, it's got to be because we all put our hands to stuff and we, we pull together. We, uh, two weeks ago, like tiny miracle, I believe, you know, started on uh, midweek trying to uh, reach kids and like, the first day, I watched the horizon a little bit, you know, paranoid that maybe we, we went and bought pizza and we've done this stuff and nobody's going to come. But kids have started to come that we haven't been seeing. And, and um, so it's, it's a way that I think all of us can go, you know, how do we work together to cause some flourishing, to see God develop little pockets of spiritual life among us. You might say, I don't, I, some of you should never work with kids. I'm not saying everybody should work with kids. You know, I, that's my, kind of my sweet spot is the smaller kids. You know, uh, I always think like little kids are, and uh, grown-ups, uh, older people of a certain age are just alike. If you want to know the truth, you ask a little kid or a grown-up of a certain age, and you'll find out the truth. But it's like the thing that when Jesus, I think, thought about little kids, the reason that Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is, is you know, made up of people like that is because the little kids are what humans are meant to be like before life does a number on you. That's kind of what I think. 
is like sometimes they're just so honest and real and transparent. And, you know, they, of course, the older they get, the, the more veneer and st- stupid stuff <laughs> happens that, you know, causes them to look like the marred people that we really are in our hearts to begin with. But they start out, and, and, and I think what God says is like, what, are, what did Jesus say? Allow the little children to come to me and don't hinder them. He says, because the kingdom of God's like that. This is where it starts. Is like us trying to get the imprint of the kingdom onto little humans like that. And it's just a way that I think we're able to see, man, we just need to pull together around that right now and see what what God is doing. It's a way, not the only way. But the local churches, I, I think, you know, I, I had this thought. The hidden strength of any effective church is the ability of its members to coalesce and collaborate around a deeply held common belief in Jesus as Lord and everything that implies. So I think about what churches really need, you know, coalesce. I've thought about this before. You know, sometimes one of the struggles that we can have is that we coalesce around a vision of the past. You know, the glory days. There were glory days here, right, that aren't like these days. They were different. But that's never coming back. Sorry, it's not coming back in the same way. And what really is going to be helpful is coalescing around a vision and collaborating. I love the idea of collaboration. What's in that word, co-labor? I like it. I like the idea that you're team, teaming up with people. What I've always experienced, for the most part, you know, very few exceptions, you get people together talking about the one big thing, the idea of glorifying Christ in our midst, the idea of people coming to know Jesus. You get people together thinking about that, that idea. So much more comes out of collaboration than just like one person thinking of everything. Because one person is limited, but a bunch of people, you just keep multiplying the ability that's present because God created you and fashioned you and made you unique, each of us. Ephesians 2.10, you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, each of us, gifted, made by God to be used in service to God. That's the story of every life. So this deeply held belief is obvious to us, but the things that implies are where we, we do ministry. So we, I, I have a pastor friend, don't talk to him as re- frequently as I used to, but we were talking at times in the past about what you really need from, you know, from people that are part of your congregation. We said faithful, and probably somebody else said this first, available, teachable. You give me faithful, available, teachable people, and you can do anything. Faithful, available, because it doesn't matter how talented you are if you don't show up and, and help. It doesn't matter how talented you are if you don't show up and help. Faithful, available, teachable. Being teachable is just the biblical idea of humility. I get it wrong sometimes. You get it wrong sometimes. But it's the capacity to go, I'm sorry. Let's start again. Let's do this together. So I think about commitment. I've heard this before. You probably have too. It's a very old joke. But in like when you have breakfast, the chicken is in, if you have eggs and bacon, the chicken's involved, but the pig is committed. Have you ever heard that? Chicken's involved, but the pig is committed. He laid it all down. And what, what we need is commitment, is to be, you know, to give ourselves completely to, to God and to his, his work among us. So they had uncommon unity, but they had uncommon generosity. When you read these passages, we touched on this already. One thing that you know is like when the church went on and grew, they, uh, here you see that they're selling property, that nobody said anything that they owned was their own. I think that's a, still a healthy concept. The, everything you have belongs to God, it's on loan to you. Everything you have belongs to God, it's on loan to you. You're giving it back one day, right? 
That's second, uh, First Timothy tra- uh, chapter six. He says, "You brought nothing into this world. It is certain you can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, let let's be content. One day, all the stuff that you call yours, all that stuff that's piled up in my garage, is going to somebody else." So the Bible says it's not really ours, it's loaned to us. So the idea that they had that nobody possessed anything was really correct. But we do know that they went on later and owned homes. They owned homes because they met in people's homes. So we don't develop an idea that the Christian movement as it uh, grew became communalism uh, as an expression of how people lived. It takes different forms depending on where you are, and we live in the capitalistic West, where individual, uh, individualism is peaked and high, and we own uh, things as much as anybody can own anything. We call them our own. But we, the principle, when I look at this, that I think is we can apply to ourselves is that generosity in your life matters. Being a generous person matters. So I'm always fascinated by the hair splitting that happens when we start talking about tithing at church. I learned to tithe my income. Our church taught us that to give a tenth of our gross income. Listen to people like Larry Burkett, my pastor, people like that, that that was a very good baseline for generosity. That was what we learned. And it's how we've tried to, to live. So people will hear tithing and they balk and they chafe. But when you look at New Testament giving, a tenth was a drop in the bucket. If we're saying, okay, New Testament, we want to give like New Testament. Okay, well then it should be extremely generous as, as a baseline. So I want to think about some principles, just kind of launch off from the idea of what generosity means uh, what I think it means, when I think about giving, it ought to be systematic. In other words, in our life, that it should be a part of how we look at the whole of our life. When I think about systematic, Frankie and I got married in 1987. It was uh, very important for us to develop a budget because one of us was uh, not good with finances. The one of us is uh, one of us is in the nursery, and the other person that's not good with finances is standing up here. So that's how it was to start with, and so I had to learn that. But a part of it was that we included in our thinking about giving, and I'm going to talk more about this, that it, it was regular. It was a part of our understanding of our whole big life. It should be planned and part of your uh, your worship. Sometimes we get to church and we think, what am I going to give today? What's in my pocketbook here? What's in my wallet? I think a healthier way to think about your generosity is that you should be planning it like you plan all the other uh, financial decisions that you make and you're purchasing. That's how you learn to give sacrificially. You learn to think that way. Like if I'm going to go buy a new vehicle and I don't plan to anytime soon, I hope, you know, uh, that Honda keeps going until it's like 400,000 miles. That would be awesome. Or Jesus comes back. But I have to think, can I afford a vehicle payment before I go and get one? Smart people think like that. I learned that, you know, through my wife, that that's how smart people think. We plan as an aspect. And so your generosity is so important to kingdom things that we learn to plan it and as an aspect of our worship. It ought to bless the local church of your membership and, when possible, flow through the local church. I don't know, you know, that we carry this principle necessarily exactly the same way, but there was accountability in this passage. When they were selling stuff, they brought it to the apostles, and there was distribution, and there was oversight and accountability. I'm not saying our generosity doesn't ever happen in ways that are outside the local church, because I don't believe that. But I do believe it starts at the local church. It starts at the church of your membership where your commitment is and your life is. So when we think about generosity and giving, it should be proportional to God's blessing. That's why giving some percentage that we think of, and I think the tenth is in Scripture in a lot of places, that it it is proportional. So if you make $100, what's 10% of $100? 
10 bucks, right? If you make $1,000, it's what? It hurts the same, or I don't know if hurt is the right way to think about it, but it's proportional, right? So if you give proportional, it means the sacrifice as we would see it, although really when we learn to think about how giving is, it's not a sacrifice. Because like I've heard people say, you can't outgive God. And and we'll see it in scripture as well. But it should be proportional to uh, the way where each of us is blessed. It should be from proper motivation. So worship uh, is an aspect of it. God loves a cheerful giver. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where Paul talks a lot about all of these kinds of realities. Sees God, the motivation for me to give is because I believe God is the owner of it anyway. So it makes him the owner and me the manager. I'm managing it. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 I think is where the scripture says, Moreover, it is required among men that one be found faithful. It's required among stewards is the word, or managers, that a person be found faithful. In other words, there's an accounting for our faithfulness. God observes, God rewards according to our faithfulness. And so he owns everything, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. And we are his managers, so there's accounting. The attitude that I have is that God owns it anyway. He's going to hold me accountable. I'm going to be faithful as, uh, as much as I can. It's an act of obedience. It's not something we weaponize. You, you think, why would you say that? Because I've seen it in churches. I've seen people weaponize their giving. I'm not going to give this to the general fund for the church to use because I want to emotionally punish some leader that I'm unhappy with. People would never do that, you think. Only over and over again. So it's like that's not what that gift is for. If you've got an issue or a challenge or problem with people, then work it out. That's what I think the Bible teaches about reconciliation, how these things look. It should be costly. It will be costly when we, we start thinking about it. John 12, 3 is where uh, the, I think her, it's Mary who brings in, it says, a costly ointment, spike nard breaks it open, pours it out. It, it was co- it's, In fact, the way it's described is very costly. That's what it says about it. So there's a correlation between giving and trust. Malachi 3.10, uh, God says, put me to the test. That's the only place in the Bible God says it's okay to put him to the test. It is in our developing trust in letting go of what God puts into our care. God already put it into your care. People a lot of times say, I, you know, I'm healthy. I went to work. I did. Well, God gave you health. God gave you strength. God gave you a job. So the trusting part of it is just me opening my hand and, and giving it back into God's care. Luke 6.38 says, uh, with the measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. And it says, give, and, and, and God says, put it into my care and see if I don't return to you, press down, what does it say? Press down, flowing over, will be given with the measure that you use. In other words, this, and it says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If you are stingy, if you are greedy, then the, the same measure is used back toward us. Now, put the brakes on hard. Here, because this is all in the big picture of stewardship and discipleship. So you should not hear me saying that your motivation to give is like you, you're going to get rich or God's going to... No, I mean, that's not our motivation because it makes it plain in Scripture that when, when a person is generous, they won't have any lack to keep being generous. But this is exactly what the Scripture teaches uh, over and over about, about giving. And there's a connection between giving and your heart because the Bible says in Matthew chapter uh, 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So they had uncommon generosity. They had uncommon power. And the power was just that they were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. That's where the power, that's what it was for, that's what it was about. Resurrection made the Christian movement uniquely powerful. We think about life. Life goes by so quickly. It says in James that it's like a vapor when it's gone. It's like when you get up in the morning and there's mist and condensate in the air, but by 10 o'clock the sun's up hot and it's a clear day. The Bible says when you examine your life across the long haul, you will start to think, man, this is exactly how it went by. Anybody, like I'm 60, I know there are people older than me here, that is exactly how you apprehend life after a while. You're like, whew, it went by quickly. I mean, mine hasn't gone completely by, but that's exactly how the Bible says it. It says that your life is like a vapor when it's gone. If we do not have the hope of the resurrection, we are to be pitied more than anyone, the Bible says. I love how when Peter or when Paul preached, this is what he said to the Athenian philosophers. He says, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the strong assurance that God gave that there is only one person who, by whom he will judge the world. When it says he's going to judge the world, it's on the basis of our faith in Jesus. That's what it's saying. There is one person whom God is going to hold us into account as to whether we put our faith in him or not. He's the standard of righteousness. He's the source of righteousness. And the Bible says one day every person is going to be held into account on the basis of our response to Jesus. The way that God proved that this is true is he raised him from the dead. And this is what they were proclaiming. It's their power was the idea, the reality they had seen of the resurrection. I thought about that it's either our comfort, which it is to me, or it's a warning shot across the bow. It's one or the other. So when you think about the resurrection, it either is a comfort and thought or it's like God shooting across the bow a warning to us that we, that we need to pay attention to. If the resurrection didn't happen, the gospel has no power to affect forgiveness and transformation. Here's a thesis for the book of Acts. If you if you wanted to say, hey, what's the if I had to put it into one sentence, it would be that God had used, was using the disciples to change the world and untold numbers of uh, lives. The meter's still running, right? On all the lives that got transformed because of the faithful witness of the apostles. Because of their eyewitness conviction that Jesus was crucified, resurrected, ascended, and returning. So their faith and invitation or witness fueled the early church's growth. That's what it was. They had seen this. There was, it was inescapable. It became for them the dominant truth of life. And they behaved accordingly. Several times this week I heard reminders that the precursor of death in local churches is, or the forerunner of death, is when our witness falls silent. When church, when people in churches no longer bear witness to other people of the resurrection, death is out there somewhere. It's impending. And when again we get back to diagnosis. I don't know how we do this exactly now. I know it probably looks different. But in the past, the church, not this church necessarily, churches that I've been around did a better job of preparing people to have conversations with their neighbors about Jesus. And if we don't talk to people about Jesus, who is going to do it? I mean, there's nobody. Where is his voice? Where are the people that God put in the world to share the good news with others? And, and so, boy, I know it's not always easy to do, but it's the, the life of the church is in its witness. It's given testimony to who Christ is. They had uncommon power because they spoke of the resurrection. There's the forerunner of death in churches when our witness falls silent. There was uncommon grace. I like this idea. It says that they, uh, there was great power to witness to the resurrection, and there was great grace upon them all. 
after walking with Jesus for 36 years, grace is the most helpful and challenging doctrinal reality to me. God knows everything about me, and knowing that, he still sent his son for me. Isn't that uh, amazing? The, I love how it's put in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, sometimes we get it all mixed up. The longer people around church, what I've found is the, the further we get in connecting the, this reality to our experience, that, that God started with you when you were completely lost and alienated from him. That's where we found each and every one of us when uh, Christ died for us, the ungodly. And it says, for scarcely for a righteous man one will die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. The idea in this uh, verse is like unlikely, unlikely. You know, you see some guy thrashing around out there drowning. You might swim out there and help him. You might not. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was the starting place. That is grace in a nutshell. Undeserved, unmerited, God doing for us what we didn't deserve, giving to us what we didn't deserve. The old hymn says, Sing it o'er and o'er again. Christ receiveth sinful men. Christ receiveth sinful men. The Apostle Paul said about himself, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I think about what he was saying. I don't know that he meant I'm literally the most sinful person who ever lived. He lived at the same time as uh, Herod and people like that. But I think what he really meant is I can't believe that grace, God's free gift, has acquitted me and taken away my guiltiness and given me life, though I deserve death. Grace, God's goodness. Kath, I've got a book that I bought that's just um, a bunch of hymns and illustrations of grace, and it's a, a great go-to book. A writer named Kathleen Norris said, Jacob's theophany, his dream of angels on a stairway to heaven, strikes me as an appealing tale of unmerited grace. Here's a man who has just deceived his father and cheated his brother out of his inheritance, but God's response to finding Jacob vulnerable, sleeping all alone in the open country, is not to strike him down for his sins, but to give him a blessing. She says, that's grace. That's what grace looks like. Not giving you what you deserve, but giving you a blessing instead. That's how God is. That's grace. I think great grace is almost redundant in the passage, even though I know what they mean. But you don't have to say it's great. We know it's great if we understand what it is because it is Jesus going to the cross so you could go free. That is amazing grace. That's what amazing grace really is. And the other thing that we see in this passage is that they had uncommon empathy. Empathy, the, the capacity to see another need, another's need. Well, uh, I, while I was away last week, we invited Lisa McCaslin from Promise 686 to talk about helping vulnerable people in Effingham County. If you didn't get to be here last week, uh, go to the app or go to Spotify or iTunes or whether you would listen to a message and listen to her message. I listened. It was about 30 minutes long. Checked in during the service and listened to the whole thing slowly afterward. And of course, I'd already met her in person. And uh, Dot and Sheila both, you know, really uh, came and talked with me about the idea of becoming involved with the ministry that they they are uh, committed to as followers of Jesus to make an impact in the lives of vulnerable people. And, I, you know, I think about sometimes, you ever feel like your compassion bucket is empty? I feel like that sometimes. I remember uh, when I was an associational missionary, we had the, this, these folks that we had helped with benevolent care again and again and again. And you could just see that, like, these people will let you help them as many times as you'll help them without ever correcting their course. And it was the first time it ever occurred to me that somebody could drain your compassion bucket. <laughs> I'm like, my compassion bucket is completely empty now. But what hearing stories like if you sat with uh, Lisa long enough, she would tell would do would be to put something back in your compassion bucket so that you would go, God, I empathize with someone 
who is in a plight on the basis of nothing more than her mom got unemployed and her parents were already divorced and she's at risk. And so when I, you know, I hear about that, this is what I think they had in the first century that we also can imitate and a way we can behave is that God sees you and me as the means to alleviate suffering around us. That's what they had among them was the ability to see the suffering that was happening. I love, I love um, in Scripture how it talks about Jesus. It says in Matthew 9, he saw, when he, look at what it says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. What is that? It's what we're talking about here, empathy. He saw first, right? He was, and he was moved with compassion because he saw that they were weary and scattered like sheep not having a shepherd. So his heart went out to them, but it didn't end there. You know, it was a, a step toward help, helping. Our seeing is affected by our feeling, or it affects our feeling, and then our feeling, our action. So prayer, you know, vital in the process, but also sometimes going, I think if we embrace this ministry properly, we'll go, you know, I saw a twin-size bed on Facebook Marketplace. That need popped up. I wonder if, you know, I might be able to grab that bed and help this family so that their kid doesn't get displaced. I think that's the practical part of this, that where we're able to exhibit the kind of generosity that God would have be part of our community of believers. So how serious are we about worshiping and service, uh, serving Christ? This past week I was reading in Psalm 116, verses uh, 12 through 13, and it said, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I thought about that verse. It's like when the, the psalm writer was thinking about his, all the th- ways God had blessed him, the first thing he thought, look at what it says, I'll take up the cup of salvation. I, what is that? That's receiving. It's receiving. He's like, how do I respond to God's blessing? You receive his blessing. You receive the reality of him being Lord. He Fully conscious of God's goodness to him, he realized the most significant way he could respond was to receive God's goodness and return it in a worshiping life. He says, this is how I respond. God's the primary actor in in this pouring out of blessing. We're the recipients of his goodness. And the question I think that I thought about here is how does it affect us? We can live uncommon lives of faithfulness and exert our lives in the same ways they did, what's the difference between us and them? You know, if if I had to evaluate, I would say there's only one real difference between us and them, and it's our willingness. Our willingness. We always think about, am I going to adjust my life to God and obey God, or am I going to continue to do live a self-directed life? To me, it's basically that simple. And willingness follows belief and conviction. We believe Jesus is really raised from the dead. We keep adjusting our lives into that reality in practical things. I want to pray for us. And we're going to observe the Lord's table today uh, as part of our worship. And uh, I will say this, if you, uh, as you've listened today, you know, I think a lot of times for us, we need, we, all of us need a crisis of inner where our faith intersects and our need becomes obvious and we just yield and say yes to Jesus. And it might be that what you need is to become baptized as a follower of Christ. You know, I don't know everybody's story in this room. I don't know if you have obeyed Jesus by uh, being baptized as a step of following him, but we would be happy to help you as you uh, think through that important step, that act. There are basically two ordinances that we observe commands that we keep as a kind of a core reality for us and we're going to do one of them in just a moment that is communion it's an ordinance of command that's been given by Christ for us to keep that we we uh, remember his shed blood and his body given for us and the other ordinance is to obey him in baptism he, he says you're uh, to be baptized and be disciples to me so 
uh, in just a moment. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask uh, uh, Jonathan if you'll come help me uh, serve communion. And, um, of course, we're going to do it in the manner that we typically have. That is, we'll ask you to form a line. And if you're uncomfortable uh, with taking the elements in this way, which is we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, and it's um, a way of observing the body and blood of Christ as a symbol of his forgiveness, there are some of the sealed uh, packets, and uh, encourage you to take it that way as we um, celebrate his body and his blood. And uh, he said, without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And he said, this uh, bread is my body given for you. And so we remember him. God, thank you for uh, this remembrance. God, for this worship, this commitment and act of uh, a portrayal of your uh, body and blood for us. We thank you for the deep, rich uh, thing that it symbolizes, your great sacrificial love, your kindness. And God, I pray that you'll take our lives as worshipers. And God, as we uh, take these elements in, God, we'll remember that we've been forgiven. We'll remember that we've been commissioned and sent out into this world as representatives of you. And God, that you'll help us to be faithful. And Father, forgive us. We know that the scripture says when we partake in these elements that we ought to uh, consider ourselves, Lord, that we need to uh, make sure that we don't eat or drink in an unworthy way. So we pray, Father, that we'll be mindful that we often uh, fail in word and act or things that we omit to do. God, help us to have our lives uh, in a place of having sought forgiveness. Thank you for your faithful promise that says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so, God, we pray now that you'll bless this, uh, these moments, that they'll be uh, worship, worshipful for us as we as we give ourselves to you. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. You can stand with me if you would, and we'll ask you uh, to come and, and to take part.